This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book on June the 14th, 1959. The covering title of our series is Christian Fundamentals and we are dealing particularly with the question of what is man? And this is number seven of the series. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together and those of you who are sharing in this tape recording, if you care, will you switch off for a little while and read together with us the book of Genesis, chapter 4, starting at verse 19, reading right through to the end of chapter 5. I have to correct a little piece of chronology. I discover that this study this evening is being conducted on May the 14th instead of June the 14th. But I hope we shan't make such serious errors as we go on with the old book. We are dealing, as you know, with the question, what is man? And we could still put man on the operating table and dissect him. There's a good deal to be discovered, difference between body, soul, spirit, heart, mind, and so on. But this is not merely an academic interest. Whatever man might have been is a speculation. What he became is a fact. And that recurring word that came in Genesis 5, and he died, and he died, and he died, would be like a funeral knell, wouldn't it? If it weren't for that one exception, it isn't written about Enoch. Just exactly what happened to Enoch, we may not be sure. But it stops. He was not, for God took him. And that may be just a little hint to us that man left to himself, there was no possibility of an exception. It would have been written concerning Enoch as the rest, and he died. If God were not the God of grace, mercy, wisdom, and almighty power. Just the same as when Abel died in the hand of his brother Cain, Another seed was given, whose name was Seth. And the story was picked up and carried on by a word that means instead of. Seth appointed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. So here we are now to consider more intimately what took place in Genesis 3. We've already looked at it in part. I remind you that we were concerned with the closing verses of chapter 2 and its association with what followed. I won't go over that again. In chapter 1, verse 26, we have this earthen vessel. There the insistence is the position that the man was to occupy. In chapter 2, the same earthen vessel, but there it is the fact that he was taken out of the ground. And now we have the test. One of the things we must remember is that he was untried. If you are acquainted at all with modern industry, you know that in the great manufacturing uh, interests like chemical industry, motor industry, the uh, question of jet-propelled planes and whatnot, 
there is now one section of that great industry which doesn't produce anything. In fact, a lot of its time is spent in destroying something. But it's most vital. They put a piece of metal into a machine and they punch it and stretch it and bang it about until they discover how long it will last before fatigue sets in and it crumbles to pieces. Or they stretch a thing and they compress a thing and it goes on for weeks. I remember being up in Derbyshire on one occasion and said, what is that peculiar pulsating sound we could hear night and day? Oh, that's Rolls-Royce, they're testing another engine. It goes on and on, day after day, week after week, just to see how long the engine will stand it. Now that's what's going to happen in Genesis 3. Here is man made in the image of God. He's come from the hand of his maker. But God has a purpose. Will that man sustain that purpose? Now we mustn't so word, uh, word it that you think that God didn't know. But we have to have these experiments in order that we may know. I again refer to chemistry. Not that I know much about chemistry. But when I was at school, one of the lessons I was very keen about was when there came a box of tricks and the rigging up things on the table and the teacher said, now let's try and see. Well, of course, we knew full well before it started, the teacher knew what was going to happen. But he said, let's try and see what happens so that we should follow it. So God is now writing and telling us what happened to that man. Not that he didn't know, but it's well for us to know. It's written across the whole of humanity that man could not be trusted to carry a burden that only Christ could bear. Later on, the temptation is going to start all over again, or the testing, with regard to the one favoured nation. And they were not given a prohibition about the knowledge of good and evil. They were given positive as well as negative laws to keep, with the assurance that if they would only keep those commandments, they would be a favoured nation, they would be a kingdom of priests, and they said, all that the Lord hath spoken, we will do, and they collapsed and failed. And there's no company, whether it be kingdom or church, whether it be individual men or nations, that have ever been able to stand alone. And it may be that it's a part of the mysterious purpose that we are conscious is back behind all these things, that men and angels, principalities and powers, should at last be made to acknowledge there's only one, and always in the mind of God, there's only been one who could ever bear this burden, and that is his beloved son. And it may have been, we don't know, we don't want to speculate, that some objection was raised to that before ever man was here. Some challenge took place among principalities and powers. At least we know there has been antagonism manifested by some of them as written in the scriptures. So now we come to this, the question of this tempting. I think it's a subject that is so intimate, belongs to us now at this present time, as well as with regard to man in Genesis 3, that we'll have to spend a little time sorting the matter out. First of all, we mustn't boggle at the word tempt. 
You remember the scripture, and I think we better get it for ourselves now. James, the first chapter, and verses 2 to 15. James, the first chapter, starting at verse 2. Rabbi brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations. Well, as it stands, that sounds pretty crude. Who's going to count it joy to fall into temptation? But supposing the word temptation has a little richer meaning. When we read about a person making an attempt to do something, we don't then think, oh, what a dreadful thing. Well, it's the same word, only its usage has changed a bit. So this word tempt doesn't mean an inducement to do something wrong, but it's to test not so much to tempt, it's to test. So let's go on. Count it all joy when ye fall into divers testings, knowing this, that the trying of your faith, you see the next time he speaks about temptation, he speaks about trying, testing. Work is patience. So it's a positive thing. It's, it's actually working something. And let patience have a perfect work that ye may be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. Well, if that's the goal of testing, we can understand that it's a right thing. Well, then he goes on and speaks further and picks it up again in verse 12. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, or testing, for when he is tried, again you see, he says tempted, and then he says when he is tried. When he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life. Is that something to be objected to? It's working for something, you see. It's got a goal in view the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Or let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. That's exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. Man was tested, but man was led away by his desires. And he transgressed, and the end of that was death. If you will look at the first of Peter, you will find he emphasizes much the same line of teaching. First of Peter, chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. That the trial, you see, each time he says temptation, James or Peter, he follows it by the trial, a testing. The trial of your faith being much more precious. So it's a precious thing. James is counted all joy, it's a precious thing. You say this is seem to be backhanded, doesn't it? Well, the epistle to the Hebrews says, oh yes, no chastening for the time being is pleasant, but rather grievous. But afterwards, it yieldeth the peaceable fruits of righteousness to those who are exercised thereby. That's the idea. So he says, it's the goal that's in view that you should have in mind, not merely the immediate consequences of the fiery trial. But the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it, 
Don't it? Gold that perisheth is even able to stand the test of fire. Might be found, though it be tried by fire, might be found unto praise and honour and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 12. Another little word for us with regard to this testing, tempting question. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you? You see, we've got to remember that it's a part and parcel of life's discipline. The next thing for us to be very, very sure about is that God's testings, or if we go back to the use of the word tempt, God's temptations are never temptations to sin, but temptations to trust in the dark, even though it seems contrary to all rhyme and reason. Would you notice the way in which it is used in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17? Now, Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 are located in the wilderness where they tempted God. And it's in this context that we read in Hebrews 2 these words, verse 17 and 18. Wherefore in all things it behoved him to to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered, being tempted, he is able to succour them that are tempted. Then in chapter 4, in Hebrews, or chapter 3, I'm sorry, verse um, 15 and 16, it says, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, how some, when they had heard, did provoke, how be it, not all that came out of of Egypt by Moses. So there we've got the reference to the wilderness and the temptations there. And then in chapter 4, verse 15, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Will you notice? It cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. In another context, he was touched with our sins. But sins are not here in question. It's infirmities. Frailties. But was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Now, from an English reader, with nothing else to guide him, it means this, that he was tempted to do all the wicked things that we are tempted to do, but he didn't sin. He was able to resist. But that isn't what it means. The word here means to be separated from. Separated from. We must put it this way. In all points he was tempted like as we are, sin accepted. He said, I'm not talking about sin. He didn't come to give you relief and succour for your sins. He came to die to put them away. But he came to succour you that are tested and tried but he's passed through that himself. He knew what Gethsemane was like, and he emerged triumphant, so may you. Then let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help, grace to help, 
You don't find grace to help when you're in your sins. You need a saviour for your sins, but you need grace to help in time of need. So here we have a stress upon the fact of the testings. Well now, let's take it a stage further. Hebrews chapter 6. Now chapter 5, I'm sorry, verse 13. For every one that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Now, the ordinary English reader would not realise that he was reading the word tempted here. The word unskillful is simply the word to tempt with a negative. A baby has not yet been tested. That's the word unskillful. What a pity that it's disguised, you see, to make it read a bit, a bit better English. The baby is unskillful. It's never been tested. Now we come to the next verse. But strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, that's the word perfect, even those who have, by reason of use, their senses exercised, now here comes the bit, to discern both good and evil. We are back in Genesis 3. The knowledge of good and evil was there in the garden. And here it says that although you wouldn't expect a baby to discern good and evil, you do expect a full-grown adult. That's just the story of Genesis 3. Our parents, coming from the hand of God, were innocent, but they had no experience. You can't possibly give a ready-made experience to anybody. Even God couldn't do that, because it's a contradiction in terms. And there they were. And into that garden comes this fallen spirit, spoken of as the serpent, but revealed to be in the New Testament that ancient serpent is the devil and Satan. What hope was there that they should be able to withstand his blandishments? The only hope was to stand absolutely without the possibility of alteration or reserve of what God said. But of course that means utter trustfulness, not the slightest shadow of doubt. And so they fell. What sort of temptation was it? Of course, we conjure up all sorts of things about this question of the temptation. The temptation was simply this. Here you have a garden planted by God, bearing fruits that were pleasant to the sight and good for food and everything that you could re desire. And one small prohibition. But you say, ah, oh, yes, but it was a temptation to good and evil. No, it wasn't. It was a temptation to the knowledge of good and evil. Now, will you turn back to Genesis 3 and notice what it says a little bit further on in the story. Verse 22. Verse 22. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. That's just the point. That's all it means. Come earlier into the story, Genesis 3. Let's read it now, shall we? From the first verse down to verse 6. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. 
And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? You see, that's the way it was put. It was magnifying the prohibition. It was, it was like some people do. Their only thought about this tree is the word evil. But why not emphasize the word good? It was the knowledge of good and evil. No temptation to do something wicked. It was just to grasp at something that was beyond them for the time being. Because Hebrews chapter 5 and Genesis 3 later on says, that's what an adult should do. And an adult should know good and evil. God knows good and evil. And the temptation was for that pair of innocents like babies to reach out and grasp something before the time. Come to the temptation of our Saviour in Matthew 4, for he passed all this way too. The final temptation was, here's the kingdoms of the world. Well, Christ had come to be king. Matthew says he was born king. Luke says he was to sit upon the throne of his father David. Well, said Satan, here's the kingdoms. You needn't go all that long way and end up at the cross. Here it is. Just one act of recognition to me as the God of this age and they're yours. A shortcut, you see. Blessed be God, our Saviour said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Get me behind me, Satan. But these were tempted to grasp that which was going to be theirs later on when they became adults. What was the dominion given to Adam? Sheep, oxen, beast of the field, fowl of the air. What has he been tempted to grasp? Put satellites round the moon and all that sort of thing. This we're only seeing the results of it. This is all going beyond, all ever since. So if you go back in uh, to the passage we read just now with all those strange names, let me direct your attention to two parts of that reading. The fourth chapter... Verse 19 starts with a man named Lamech. And chapter 5 ends up with a man named Lamech. The one is in the line of Cain, and the other is in the line of Seth. One is the false seed, one is the true. But they're both named Lamech. And the first Lamech, he uses the word 70 times 7 with regard to the vengeance on Cain. And the second Lamech was 777, so you can get muddled up with the two if you wish, or if you're not careful. And then you notice the names of some of them in chapter 4 are very near the names of some of them in chapter 5. You notice in verse 17 that Cain's first son was called Enoch. Enoch. But then Enoch was a good man in chapter, uh, the next chapter, chapter 5. He was walked with God and God took him. So when Jude is writing about this very story, he says, Enoch the seventh from Adam, don't forget. And then you have names that sound very much like the ones in chapter 5, where you get Irad and Methusael instead of Methuselah, only twisting it round the other way. That's the character of satanic travesty, to get very near the truth, or as it's put later on in Genesis, they had brick, Forced tone, counterfeit all the time. Well, what is it said about Lamech and his sons? Well, they were the inventors of his day. There was the harp and the organ 
There was the artificer in brass and iron. There were these people who were active, inventive people. What about the other Lamech? Well, we don't know whether he was inventive or not, but he saw through it. Listen to what he says. Verse 28 of chapter 5. And Lamech lived in 180 and two years and begat a son. And what did he say about him? And he called his name Noah, saying, This name shall comfort. See, the word Noah means rest and comfort. He called his name Noah, saying, This same shall comfort us from what? As concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. Now, that's just the opposite. Cain is the first city builder. His descendants were already inventing to prevent themselves from feeling that the earth was under a curse. And one of the characteristics of all invention is to make this present pilgrimage a little bit easier and instead of that being a benefit, to a large extent, it lulls us into a false security and we're not so conscious of the curse that's come down upon the earth. It's very good to have better houses than our ancestors and be able to travel easier than our ancestors. Uh, sometimes when I've been standing so packed in the tube, I've thought, well, the old English word travail and the word travel were one and the same and it's getting like it again. But you see, most of the inventions, and we're profiting by them, oh yes, all I've got to do is to switch this on and off, and then the light comes. Not many long ago, it was a bit of steel and a tinder, blowing it, cold morning, getting the fire, oh yes, but at the same time, there's another purpose in it. It's to prevent you, blunt you, from the consciousness that the only solution to life's troubles is not the inventions of men, but the gift of God, which is Christ. That's the one thing. So, enjoy all the inventions as they come, but remember not to let them lead you away, but rather help you to see that they may be used in a, or abused in a, a wrong sense. I think I'd like you to turn to one passage where this question of inventions come a little bit more. Now just give me a moment to, to discover... Yes, in 2 Chronicles, chapter 26, verse 15. 2 Chronicles, chapter 26, verse 15. I dare say you remember, or you will anticipate the story. There was a king named Uzziah, and it's written concerning him that he was a fairly good king. 2 Chronicles 26, says of him in verse 14, And Isaiah prepared for them throughout all the host shields and spears and helmets and habergians and bows and slings to cast stones. And he made in Jerusalem engines invented by cunning men to be on the towers and upon the bulwarks to shoot arrows and great stones withal. And his name spread far abroad for he was marvellously helped till he was strong. See, these inventions were right. They were there to preserve the peace of that city. But look how they were used. He was marvellously helped till he was strong. And when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. So the very things to save him and his city from destruction only brought about a moral collapse instead. Well, here's the story. And uh, we get... Um, in the book of Ecclesiastes, while we're looking at this, 
chapter 7. Ecclesiastes is up beyond the book of Psalms, you remember. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, chapter 7. The writer of that book makes this comment. He says in verse 29 of chapter 7, Lo, this only have I found, that God hath made man upright. Well, that's how man was made. He hadn't got a positive righteousness, but he was upright. But they have sought out many inventions. Well, that looks as though it's the very opposite then. So, while we're not going to decry inventions, that would be just as absurd, let's realise their relative place. And it was that spirit that crept into Genesis 3 and man, instead of being quite satisfied with the limited dominion that was given to him, the sheep and the oxen, he stretched out to be what? As God. Or we must go back to Genesis 3 and read a little bit further. I think I have read verse 1. I hope so, anyhow. And the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Now, those words are not exactly the same as recorded in chapter 2, but it was a fair statement. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. I suppose the sheer fact that she was willing to argue with him, gave him the opening. He shall not surely die. God had said she would. She said, lest. He said, you won't. And then he adds to it, quickly. For God doth know, instead of dying, for God doth know, that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And you needn't have the S on the word, because Elohim is the word translated God, in this section, all the time. You shall be as God. And that was the bait. A sense of being limited, a grasping for something beyond, and they're a failure. When we come to look at this further, we shall discover that that's just the very opposite from that which is written of the true, successful Christ of God. He thought it not the thing to be grasped at, to be on equality with God, but humbled himself. But this man grasped at something that was beyond him at this temptation. And as a consequence, sin entered into the world and death by sin. So we have, as the story goes through, the words we've read just now, we read them again in verse 22. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden. It seems as though as long as man had access to the tree of life, he would live. But here's a most definite indication that God will not tolerate the thought of an immortal sinner. Now you say, I can't make that square with everlasting punishment. 
Well, don't try then. Perhaps you want to make everlasting punishment square with this. Perhaps God has already said there will never be permitted an immortal sinner. There's many other things to be seen yet, uh, but that one, that one thing I think we ought to remember. What a contrast. You should be as God. And he drove out the man. And he died. Even though he lived 900 and something years afterwards. He died. Well now let's take this question of good and evil a little bit further. 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 7. 17, sorry. 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 17. Thine, then thine handmaid said, The word of my Lord the King shall now be comfortable. For as an angel of God, so is my Lord the King, to discern good and bad, good and evil. Therefore the Lord thy God will be with thee. You're like an angel of God. You discern good and evil. Now when you look at verse 20, same woman speaking, same king in view. To fetch about this form of speech hath thy servant Joab done this thing. And my Lord is wise, according to the wisdom of an angel of God, to know all things that are in the earth. Now that woman, she may not have been a theologian, but she's recorded of saying that an angel knows good and evil. And when she says it the second time, she says, an angel knows all things. Well, surely that's what it means. If you knew everything that was good and everything that was evil, you'd know all things. For that must encompass the whole universe. Can you tell me something which is outside the category of good and evil? What is it? Where is it? It cannot be. So instead of emphasising the word evil or even emphasising the word good, it's simply a claim to omniscience. To claim to be like God. And God says if you'd only wait and grow up, a perfect man does discern good and evil. For he has his senses exercised. That's what it says in Hebrews. But these had never had any exercise. They were being exploited. They were being told things that would be harmful to them, which would be quite reasonable when they grew up. We can see that among young people. A young lad goes out, or a young girl goes out to business, and if she or he gets into the company of a certain type, well, before you know where they are, these children are being spoiled completely by being told things which were legitimate and right if they were only waited about another 15 or 20 years. And that's just what happened to this pair of innocents in the Garden of Eden. They were exploited, and they reached out for something, but they had no capacity to contain it. And so we've got the stress that, a, that the wisdom of an angel of God knows good and evil or knows all things. Well now we come back to Genesis 3 to observe another feature. I shall only be able to indicate this because it will be, uh, have to be developed 
later on. It says in verse 6 of Genesis 3, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, now he doesn't say, of course she was mistaken. What God knows is right and good and true, but if God put a prohibition on it, even though it was right and good and true, that's the point. Here was the simple test, and in that simple test, failure. It's a very humiliating thing to realise that our first parents succumbed to a temptation to something to eat and the children of Israel in the wilderness succumbed to a temptation about something to eat and the first temptation offered to our Saviour himself was something to eat. Do you remember it? It couldn't be lower, could it? No great magnificent thing to make us heroes in the strife just something to eat. How vulnerable we are with all our wonderful moral stand, with all the things that go to make up our integrity. Once we reach the, the point where starvation is on us, our morals fly out of the window. Even Solomon wrote and said, give me neither poverty nor riches. But if I have poverty, I may steal for bread. He knew it. And here it is. There's no, not much sort of pride in this that our first parents, surrounded by plenty, should succumb. And she, she did eat and gave also her husband with her and he did eat. And what Satan said was true. He said, your eyes shall be opened. And it says so. The eyes of them both were opened. That's a fact, friends. I quote Shakespeare. He speaks about the juggling fiend that lies like truth, that keeps the word of promise to our ear and breaks it to our hope. That's the insidious policy of Satan. He lies like truth. He said your eyes shall be opened, but he didn't tell them the consequences. Their eyes were opened. And now they were conscious of guilt and shame where innocency had once been there. And they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden as he had been before. But this time, instead of going to meet him in joyful fellowship, they hid themselves. That leads us, of course, to the provision that they had attempted to make and the provision that God made. That's got to be looked at yet. But I want to come to the end of the story in order to be able to round it off this evening. It says in verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed, now that word placed, is the first occurrence of the word tabernacle in the Bible. He placed as in a tabernacle, the two things took place in the Garden of Eden from the hand of God. Man had sinned and stood before him without any plea. And God provided a covering through a sacrifice. You remember, coats of skin. And God put a tabernacle at the gate of the garden. So although they were driven out, they saw something there. What did they see? 
There was a tabernacle at the east of the garden of Eden and cherubim. Now the cherubim are not described here, it's simply stated. But you must remember that Moses who wrote this also received instruction by God to build a tabernacle in the wilderness and in the very holiest of all of that tabernacle were the cherubim. So here we have immediately man sinned a forecast, a provision. They were covered with coats of skin which is redeeming love. They were given the tabernacle as a picture of restoration yet to come. And a flaming sword which turned every way to keep it doesn't so much say to keep them away from the tree of life, but to keep the way, guard the way of the tree of life until that tree of life should be once more accessible. Will you turn to the last page of your Bible, the book of the Revelation? And in that last page there is an alternative rendering. But here we have it in verse 14. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life. Right at the beginning, they forfeited the tree of life. And now, right at the end, they have a right to the tree of life. The alternative rendering, instead of blessed are they that do his commandments, is blessed are they who have washed their robes. Now, on the surface, that looks very, very different. But I speak from memory, entoli is the word commandment and stoli is the word robe. They look very much the same. And that's the alternative rendering. In the beginning, keep the commandments. At the end, wash their robes. No man will ever attain everlasting life by keeping commandments. Adam was put on probation, now lest he become one having everlasting life is turned out. God gave the people of Israel through Moses laws that were perfect. But the scripture says, if righteousness and life could have been given by the law, then there'd have been no need for a gospel. You know, I, I'm beginning to wonder whether we are quite justified in urging some of our, especially our young people, to learn such a psalm as Psalm 119. You may wonder at this. When I first became a Christian, I came into contact with some who made a boast that they could quote Psalm 119 right through from beginning to end. Well, that was a sort of a challenge. So I had to try at it. I never managed it properly. But you see, the more I know Psalm 119, the more I'm saying, keep thy commandments, keep thy statutes, keep thy testimonies. And if I'm not careful, I shall be, I shall be all the time thinking that that's the will of God. Or I come to another psalm, and it says, the testimonies of the Lord are sure, the, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Well, the law of the Lord never converted my soul. It condemned me, but it never converted me. You see, there we have a man on trial in the garden, and all the commandments in the world never gave him everlasting life, but he lost it through them. And the whole purpose is to lead us to see that if ever we're going to have this, which Adam lost, if ever we're going to enter into the purpose of the ages which Adam failed, it must be through him who himself is called in the New Testament eternal life and gives it to us on the ground of faith and not of works of law of any kind. 
We must leave it there again. We haven't done with Genesis 3, not by a long way. We must look at these types a bit more closely, especially to consider what the cherubim stand for. But of course, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between thy seed and her seed and all that's involved there. So at least we shall have to have one more study in Genesis 3, if not two. But inasmuch as this has something to do with you and with me, we are not all like Enoch, who may be exceptions. We belong to a race concerning whom it is written, unless God stretches hand, unless the Lord returns first, and he died. And here we've got to face the fact that by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. But we've also got to rejoice in this fact, that as in Adam, all die. If you're in Adam, that's what it says. But are you in Christ? And this is what it says. In Christ should all be made alive. So there's hope in it, you see. There's a gospel element in it, as well as the dread fact that the wages of sin is death. So once again I commend this serious section of God's word to every one of you who are listening. And do, please, don't allow some highbrow scientific person to just jolly you out of considering it, for this is our life to know the typical teaching of these early chapters of the book of Moses.